There's an outline provided in the bulletin as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Well, recently, a friend of mine shared with me an experience of being called to be questioned for jury duty, which is always an exciting thing if you've ever had to do it. Um, but this friend of mine said things, um, things didn't go as well uh, in terms of getting on to the jury. I guess going well is usually not having to be on the jury. Um, but was not asked to serve on the jury that... Uh, the attorney and judge and him had some disagreements that the attorney had to say to this individual that this is not about right and wrong. This is about the law. That this is not about right and wrong. This is about the law. Now, some of us might be like, lawyers. Now, Yes, uh, I'm sorry for anyone who's an attorney or loves an attorney. Uh, They may be getting a a bad rap today a little bit, and I apologize. There are good ones out there. But this legalistic thinking of it doesn't matter what's right and wrong. What matters is the law infects not just our legal system but our faith. That when we look at God's law, sometimes we can stop concerning ourselves with what is right and wrong and think instead about what is the law. Now, you'd like to think those things match up in a lot of cases, but we have a way of separating right and wrong from the law. So today, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what I want us thinking about. What is our mindset when it comes to obeying the law? Are we thinking what is right versus what is wrong? Or what does the law say? And how can I play defense attorney to justify that I am keeping the law? So if you would, open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, and I'll be starting in verse 21, and we'll go through the end of the chapter, verse 48. In this passage, Jesus is essentially trying to distance himself to correct the opposing view of the scribes and Pharisees, a kind of lawyer of religious law, saying, you have heard it said by them, but I say to you. That six different times Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but I am saying to you. I am presenting a different understanding than what they have been presenting. So here, these examples that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, for it is truth. And though it can hurt to hear it, for it exposes our sins. Lord, we pray that you would do the work of a surgeon and cut out that which is sinful, to expose that which is sick, and to heal us by your word. To not just say, here's the problem, but here is the solution in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, fill me with your spirit today, that I may proclaim the truth. Use me in spite of myself, in spite of my own weakness, my own sin, the fact that this passage cuts me as well. And Lord, send your spirit forth in the power of the word that we would know the truth and that we would be conformed to the image of your son to be perfect as you, our heavenly father, is perfect. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we look at this passage, this is a hard one. It, it likely hits all of us somewhere, certainly in be perfect. I mean, that's a, that's a rough one. But throughout the rest of the passage, it is convicting us of our sins. And so 
the question I want us to ask is not how bad does it make you feel, but what is our mindset when we hear the law of God? What is our mindset when we hear the law of God? And Jesus is using these six examples to try to make us evaluate how we think of God's law. Now, we're going to group them into pairs. And so the first two deal with our desires and our attitudes. Do we let the law touch our desires and attitudes? The middle two deal with our commitments and our words. How does the law affect what we commit to and what we say? And then the last two deal with how we relate to others. How do we let the law shape our attitude towards others? All right, so as we look at the first two examples Jesus gives on murder and adultery, we notice quickly that this passage is about judgment. It's about punishment. The opening words are this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Judgment is mentioned again, as is prison and a judge and a guard. Oh, and hell is mentioned three different times here. Jesus is trying to show us that sin is punishable. And we usually understand this. I mean, he's talking about murder and adultery. Murder is a serious sin, and it should be punishable. Adultery is a serious sin, and it should be punishable. Just about everyone in the world would agree with that. And yet Jesus doesn't let us sit there. He pushes us farther, making us reflect and ask, if those sins are punishable... What about the desires and attitudes that cause those sins? Jesus goes on and says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That unwarranted anger and bitterness towards others, Jesus is saying that is a sin deserving judgment. Now that might make us stop and think, well, why? It's not hurting anyone. No one's going to come to my house and arrest me because I was angry with somebody and insulted them. Everyone on Twitter would be in jail by now. Everyone in politics would be in jail by now if you got arrested for insulting someone, obviously, so that's not happening. The cops don't pull you over and say, do you know why I pulled you over? You said you fooled to that guy driving around you. Sorry. Going to have to put you in jail. Nobody does that. We recognize in our legal system that they're not as bad. And yet Jesus is saying that these attitudes are just as sinful. He's saying liable to judgment and the fire of hell. So why is he saying these things are just as bad as the external actions? Well, Jesus goes on in that second example to tell us. He said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the reason the judgment is directed at attitudes and desires is because we're still sinning, even if we're not doing it outwardly. We are cherishing and enjoying those sinful desires internally while externally not breaking the law. And the example Jesus gives, surprise, is the perfect example. He's talking about lust and adultery, that lust allows a person to enjoy the sinful desires and feelings of adultery without actually committing adultery. 
That when we lust about someone, we're fantasizing or desiring about another person sexually. And that's a big issue for our world today with online pornography. That people can enjoy the desires of adultery and the experience of adultery while still seemingly obeying the commandment. I haven't cheated on anybody. I haven't committed adultery. And yet Jesus is pushing us, saying it's not just external actions, but it is desires and attitudes that are liable to judgment and punishment. Now this is usually where we all feel real bad. And so we ask Jesus, what are we to do? What do we do if convicted of this? Well, here's what he tells us not to do. He says, usually we go and try to cover up those acts with acts of worship. When we feel bad about sinful desires, we try to balance the scales with good deeds and gifts to God. God, I'm really sorry I did this, so because of that, I'm going to do this to make up for it. That's what he's talking about when he says, when you go to the altar to bring a gift, just leave it there. He's recognizing that someone is still trying to worship, to still try and be externally obedient to make up for his internal feelings of guilt. And he says, stop, leave it. There are more important things to do. It brings us back to that Old Testament reading from Micah 6. He says, I don't want your dead animals. I don't want your rivers of oil. I don't want your firstborn son. I want your heart. I want you to love justice, to love kindness, to do that, to walk humbly with God. I don't want gifts to make up for things. And so what he wants us to do is to attack the problem of sin head on, to not try to cover it, but to cut it out. You see, what he wants us to do is to channel the anger we have towards others and bring it back in towards our sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, the holier we become, the more anger we shall feel against sin, but we must never feel anger against the sinner. See, God wants us to get angry at our sin. He wants us, our desires, to not be finding ways to enjoy sin without breaking the law, but our desires to develop a hatred towards sin, to find it disgusting and vile and something that leads us away from God. And we know he cares a lot about this because Jesus says, hmm, let's use the most extreme analogy possible, amputation. How much do I want you to hate it? I want you to hate it enough that you would cut off a part of your body to get rid of it. I want you to try and get rid of it so hard that I I want you to be willing to pay the cost to get rid of something valuable and what you consider essential so that you will hate sin. Do we hate our sinful desires in life enough that we would be willing to get rid of good things, essential things, in order to avoid breaking God's law and doing what was wrong. What steps are we willing to take in our lives to rid our lives of sin? Are we open to saying, Jesus, help me to see sin as evil, wherever it is in my life? Will we pray for the Spirit to turn our hatred from that person or that group of people and turn it inward towards the sins we're struggling with? Or are we trying to just cover up what's wrong? To bury it down deep, to not let it see the light of day, to not think about it? Or are we hating sin enough that we want our secret attitudes to conform to God's law? 
What is our mindset to our desires and attitudes? Are we trying to find ways that we can obey the law while still breaking it inside? Or do we bring that law in our hearts and say, God, take away all law breaking in there. Take it all away. So that's what he says in these first two passages. He goes right at our desires and attitudes and say, says, how are you thinking of the laws? And then he turns to our commitments. He says, not just what's in your heart, but what you say, what you've committed to. Now, Jesus is talking especially about formal commitments when he's talking about vows and oaths, marriage vows and other oaths. Jesus says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Last January, I preached on divorce from another passage of Jesus, and man, it's here again, and it's really not fun uh, to talk about. I've told the search committee, it's my least favorite thing to talk about in church. Like, here we go again. But here he's not talking about it broadly. He's not talking about divorce as, as every little element of it. He's thinking very specifically here. So what is Jesus saying specifically here? He is critiquing the way that people so quickly abandon their marriage vows. See, it was a common Jewish practice of the day that if you wanted to get divorced with someone, the only thing keeping you from getting divorced was filing the proper paperwork. As long as you filed the proper paperwork and gave that certificate of divorce, you were good. No one really cared why. They weren't concerned. Well, as long as you were the guy. Women weren't allowed to do that, but the men were. As long as you filed the proper paperwork, you were good. And Jesus is saying that people were using that provision for divorce to get out of their marriage vows. In other words, people were following the laws of divorce in order to break the laws of marriage. And in their minds, they're thinking, well, I followed the law. So that nullifies that previous commitment and we're good. As long as I still keep the law, I'm okay. But the reality was that married couples were not honoring the commitments they had made to one another. That intended permanence of marriage was being undone by this divorce provision. The law was supposed to be something that encouraged people to keep commitments, not gave them an easy way to escape their commitments. After all, what's the purpose of making a commitment if not to keep that commitment? Now, Jesus here, even in this passage, recognizes there are instances where divorce is certainly permissible. But he's saying those are the exception to the rule. That marriage is designed to be something that lasts as long as the husband and wife both shall live. It's not to be something done flippantly, either to enter in flippantly or to exit it out of. That our commitments should actually commit us to something. Our attitude towards God's law should not be, all right, what do I need to do in order to stop doing this? See, Jesus is concerned that we are not using the law when it's convenient and how it's convenient for us. But he's saying, why are they there and are you letting it shape your life? He goes on to that when he talks about oaths that those same religious leaders made a huge deal about making and keeping their oaths. And by putting such a big emphasis on these formal pronouncements, they had kind of forgotten that, well, you're supposed to be trustworthy anyway. 
Oaths don't actually help trustworthiness, as weird as that sounds. I had a friend in college who, just like a verbal tick, he would say the phrase, not going to lie, but that was really good. And I would just sit there and be like, so like oh, the other times, are you okay lying? Like this time you're not going to lie, though? And it was really dumb because he didn't mean it. He just meant, I really mean it this time, to which made me ask, so you don't mean it the other times? Not going to lie, it was a really big concern for me. Um, you see, oaths don't help with that. They expose the fact that humans are by nature sinful and untrustworthy. And we need oaths to try and convince people, no, really, this time I mean it. This time I mean it, it's true. I promise you, this time I'm telling the truth. All those other times, you know, can't be too sure. But this time I'm doing it. See, oaths were brought into being because humans do twist the truth and lie. We don't trust one another. We don't take one another at their word. And Jesus wants us to be truthful and trustworthy. He tells his disciples, let what you say be simply yes and no. Our words should be taken at face value. But why does Jesus say that? He goes on to say that anything more than this, that is yes or no, comes from evil or the evil one. From the very beginning, Satan's tactic against humanity was lying. Did God really say that? That won't happen. He's a liar. And when we become untrustworthy and when we found our lives on lies, we follow after him instead of after God. And Jesus says, I want you to be honest with your commitments, to be trustworthy in what you say. Today we had a good example of commitments. We received three new members. And they had to answer important questions in front of all of us. But you might have noticed, nowhere in there did they say, we swear to God that we will do this. We did not... Oh, that's a hymnal. That doesn't count. There we go. No one had to put their hand on a Bible and say, we promise that we will fulfill these marriage vows. It was, yes, I do. Same thing was like, would you like to go to lunch? Yeah. It's the same thing. Yes, they were big commitments, but we expect people to simply say yes and mean it. And that is a binding commitment for them. That we expect members who take those vows and commitments to keep those vows and commitments. And when they're no longer convenient, not to just ignore them and forget them. But that they actually mean something to their lives. That's what Christ wants from us. Is to actually mean what we say instead of look for ways out of what we've committed ourselves to. After all, what more can we say than yes or no? What could I really say that would convince you I'm telling the truth other than say what I would say? I swear to God. I swear to this. I swear on the grave of. I swear on this. Are you going to, is that really going to help? It's not. You either trust someone or you don't. Because we know that God knows if we're telling the truth. He knows the truth of all of us. And so are we looking at the law for ways to go from commitment to commitment to commitment? Or are we seeing the law as something that tells us to be truthful and honor what we've committed to? What is our mindset towards it? So that's that middle section there. He then goes on after looking at our desires, at our commitments. He finally looks up at others. How does the law shape our focus on others? He says... 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now the eye for an eye is another famous Bible thing that people have heard and may not even know is from the Bible. It existed to restrict retribution. So theoretically, if someone punched you in the face once, you were allowed to punch them in the face back once. It was equal retribution. It was designed to stop escalating violence and vengeance. That if that's what they did to you, you can only do that back. Okay? Some of us may have done that with our children. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just kind of crazy. Jesus is saying here, I'm not concerned about this. See, what people have done is they look at this eye for an eye, and what they see is a requirement. But Jesus says it is just a restriction. It doesn't say you have to take an eye for an eye. It says you are permitted to. To take that. That is the limit of what you could do. But like all sinful humans, we like to push the limit. We like to make sure we're getting the limit. And so this question is how does the law shape our attitude for others? See, often we use the law to answer the question what do I get to do to harm someone who's been mean to me? What is permitted? What is the most I can do to get back at someone while still keeping the law? What are my rights? How much can I sue this person for and it still be according to law? Jesus is saying that's not the right attitude. Jesus tells us to be generous. Someone hits you, say, here's the other side. Someone needs something from you, here you go. Instead of asking ourselves, what can I do to them? He wants us to ask, what could I do for them? What could I do for them? See, it's the difference between focusing on our rights versus the needs of others. Jesus shows in these verses that we need to be sacrificial in looking at how we care for other people. We shouldn't be concerned about maintaining our rights or even our possessions. We should be concerned about the needs of others. See, when we look at how the law tells us to relate to others, we need to ask, what could I give to them? Not what do I want to get from them. But who are these others we're supposed to help? Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus commands his disciples to love their enemies. Why? He goes on to say that that's how Christians are different. Jesus points out that even the worst and most irreligious people in the world love those who like them back. So what's the big deal if you're doing that? It's like our New Testament reading from James 2 where James says even the demons believe in God and they do something about it. They shudder. If you say you believe in God, what are you doing about it? How are you living differently because you believe 
in God. See, Christians are called to be different, and part of that difference is we reflect our Heavenly Father and His character. Our passage ends with verse 48, and it says, You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So when we think, what is our mindset towards God's commands? It needs to be, how do I reflect the character of my Heavenly Father? What would I need to do that would most reflect what God the lawgiver is like? See, we should reflect this in our mindset towards his commandments. Not using the law for our own advantage, but seeking to express his character in our lives. By valuing others, by being honest, by sacrificing. All when it's more convenient to follow the letter of the law, to put our arms around the lamp instead of go and play elsewhere. We like to go right up against it and find ways to keep the law. But Jesus says, I'm after perfect obedience, not token obedience. But when we hear those words, you must be perfect, we likely think, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. My sinful attitudes are so strong and I can't seem to avoid sinning. And that's why the law has been used improperly. When we as sinners realize we cannot keep the law perfectly, we become our own defense attorneys and stop asking what's right and wrong and start thinking, what would count as keeping the law? How can we shape this law to make it a little more convenient for a sinner like me? How can I finagle it in such a way that it's like, all right, I could defend that case. At least I could convince myself that I could defend that case. We turn into lawyers. We turn into our own lawyers, trying to justify our behavior, realizing the standard of the law is so high. And we do that because we're worried we'll never be perfect unless we make perfect a little bit lower. But hear the commandment again in verse 48. It does not say this, be perfect so that you can be children of a heavenly father. It says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Those words assume that you are God's children. Those words assume that you're not yet perfect. And yet you have a heavenly Father. They assume that we are still trying, yet still his children. And so we don't obey the law superficially, thinking we have to be perfect in order to be loved by God. We don't look at it on the externals, forgetting our desires. We don't try to weasel our way around different commandments. We don't try to think about ways that we can obey it without really obeying it. We say, what is the real standard? What am I really called to do? And I'd like to try to do that. I'd like to try and obey the law like Jesus. See, Jesus obeyed every command from the heart. He was committed to obeying the commandment, even though he knew that commitment he made would lead to his execution. And he didn't obey the law to get something from us. He obeyed the law to give us something from himself, his own perfect obedience. So in God's eyes, when you hear the command, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, know that in his eyes, he sees you as perfect as Jesus himself. And he wants you to live like that. To live and demonstrate the character of your heavenly Father. And Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit into you to transform your heart, to love the law, to hate sin, and to live as God wants you to live as his dearly beloved children. So children of God, 
Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we give thanks for your many blessings. We give thanks for your law. That again, though it is a high standard, we thank you that Jesus has fulfilled it for us and we pray that we would see it rightly. That we would not become our own lawyers to defend ourselves, but that we would let Jesus stand and bear our defense saying, this one is covered not by what he has done to cover up his own deeds, but he is covered by my deeds. He is covered by my blood and he is acceptable in God's sight. May we know that Jesus stands in the courtroom of heaven saying, this one belongs to me because of the cross. And let us live in that joy of knowing we are covered in Christ, obeying the law and caring for others. In Jesus' name, amen.